Welcome, welcome, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to this, the 23rd edition of the Rambling Brews Podcast, hosted by yours truly. I do go by the name Tim, and right off the jump, I want to say happy Father's Day to all the dads out there. I hope you were able to sit back, relax, crack a cold Coors Light, enjoy yourself, and just celebrate with your family. I mean, I had a great time with my wife and daughter. We were outside. The weather's beautiful this time of year up in western Pennsylvania. Uh, We were outside. We had the hose hooked up to my daughter's splash pad. She was running through it, having a blast. My dogs were out there. It was just an all-around great day. And I hope uh, you guys were able to spend some time with your dad or your kids or whatever the case may be. Um, And on a personal note, happy Father's Day to my dad. I know he listens to the podcast, which is crazy to me. I know my whole family listens to the podcast, which really blows my mind uh, that anybody listens to the podcast. But I really appreciate the hell out of everybody that does. I know my family does because my dad will call me and say, hey, your aunt wants to know what this means or your uncle wants to know what this hockey chirp means or whatever. (laughs) So I always think that's pretty funny. And I do appreciate everybody that listens. Um, I was recording this. I recorded this. This is the second time, actually, I'm recording this episode. I recorded it last night. So right now it's Monday night and uh, I recorded it Sunday night, Father's Day night. And um, this site I use, Cast Podcasting Site, for some reason I recorded a two hour podcast. It went very well. I really uh, was proud of it, enjoyed it. I was getting ready to edit it and put it out. And, um, you know, sure as shit, the audio is not recoverable and everything's gone. So I'm recording it. It's a little bit late from what you guys are used to. So I appreciate your patience, but I wanted to get something out to you. And right now I'm watching... um, you know, a great game. The New York Islanders and the Tampa Bay Lightning just dropped the puck a few minutes ago as I'm recording it. Steven Stamkos scored 45 seconds into the game for the Tampa Bay Lightning to make it one nothing. And Amelie Arena down there in Tampa Bay is buzzing. The series is tied 2-2. It's just been an unbelievable series. We'll dive into that in a little bit. And uh, the Montreal Canadiens and the Vegas Golden Knights, that series has been crazy. It's 2-2 right now. Last night, uh, Robin Leonard got the start after some uh, miscues by Marc-Andre Fleury in Game 3 and a little bit of a uh, some poor play in Game 2. And who knows if Leonard's going to give the cage back. We'll see. But it's pretty crazy because Vegas is actually coming into the series. They were minus 400 to win the series. So if you're not a gambler, and I'm not a gambler, but just to explain the odds, that basically means that you have to bet $400 to win 100 So you've got to risk four times as much as you're going to make. That's how big of a favorite Vegas was. So I don't know if the Vegas sports books, no pun intended, were, you know, uh, you know, just, I guess, not uh, giving too much credit to Montreal. They haven't really watched the North Division. And I, I've been one to shit all over the North Division all year. So I totally understand it. But the Vegas sports books really just looked by Montreal and they think Vegas is going to the Stanley Cup final. They did win game four last night and tied the series up 2-2. It's heading back to T-Mobile Arena in downtown Las Vegas. So holy shit. I, I'm just thinking before we get into any of that, like I, I think it was uh, maybe 11 years ago this week, I saw it all over Twitter that the, and I'm jumping around here. I'm usually doing the This Week in Sports History segment at the end of the podcast. But it was uh, 11 years ago yesterday, I believe, that the Boston Bruins had a $156,000 bar bill after they beat the Vancouver Canucks in the Stanley Cup Final Game 7. So I could only imagine what the bar bill is going to look like if Vegas wins it, especially if they win it at home in the biggest party city in the world. My God, that's just going to be unbelievable. But they got a long way to go yet. Uh, best of three right now, pretty much. And we're going to break down that series 
as well as this Islanders and uh, Tampa Bay series. And if I shout out a couple scores in the middle of the podcast just randomly, it's because I'm watching the game right now. So uh, as I'm speaking, like I said, one nothing Tampa Bay in game five here, 14 minutes ago in the first period. And uh, before I even get started, you know, I know I mentioned this a couple weeks ago that I was going to be, you know, drinking some more water, less beers a little bit. Um, I gassed a lot of beers over the weekend watching these games and having fun. My neighbor had a um, little party, a little get-together, and uh, it was a blast. I got to meet Doc Sampson, uh, who's the uh, the wrestling doctor for AEW, All Elite Wrestling. I've talked about that a bunch of times on this podcast with my buddy Ray. It was pretty cool. He worked for WWE. This guy saved Jerry the King Lawler's life. Um, a few years back, I think it was in 2012, Jerry the King Lawler, one of the best wrestlers of all time, King of Memphis, um, just an unbelievable guy. He had a heart attack on live TV on Monday Night Raw, and Doc Sampson was the one to to save his life and get him to the hospital and everything. So pretty crazy to hear that story and meet him, and hopefully he'll come on the podcast sometime soon. And I'm going to have to give AEW another chance a little bit after talking to him and getting his insight and everything that goes on behind the scenes there. But I want to uh, shout out my buddy Jeff Lewis for hooking up that uh, conversation. And we'll have both those guys on the podcast at some point soon, hopefully. But like I said, I'm back on the water game. I've got no beer tonight, so I'll be swigging water for everybody on on this podcast. And right now I've got a bubbly, sparkling water, cherry-flavored. These are really damn good, so I'm going to go ahead and crack that. I don't know, something refreshing about water, but it's just uh, not quite Coors Light, but it'll get me through this podcast. I think we should jump right into the Tampa Bay Lightning and the New York Islanders uh, series here because it's been very tight. It's been very fun to watch. It's been entertaining, a lot more entertaining, I think, than I thought it was going to be whenever we uh, kicked off the series here about a week ago. And because it was the day after I recorded, I believe, when Ray was on last week that game one was in this series. And it's been nothing short of electric. It's been fun to watch because I was a little bit down on it coming in because Tampa Bay, they're awesome to watch. They're high flying. Uh, they just want to score off the rush. They want to generate offense. They want to, you know, they want to win six five if they can. They have a fortunately for them, they have one of the best defensemen in the NHL and Victor Hedman and the best goaltender in the NHL, probably in Andre Vasilevsky, right up there with Carey Price from Montreal. But they like the run and gun, and it's really fun to watch. And the Islanders are the complete opposite. They want to get to their game. They want to forecheck. They want to cycle the puck. They want to roll four lines, finish their checks, muck it up, just interfere, just all kind of extra um, curricular activity after the whistle, all that stuff. They're just everything that's almost wrong with hockey, um, where the mediocrity just kind of blossoms in the playoffs. And that's my opinion. You can say if you're an Islanders fan or you like that kind of hockey, that's fine. It's never going away. So I can sit here and bitch about it all I want. It's never going away. But I thought, you know, coming into the series, they're really going to frustrate the, t- the top end players for Tampa Bay. And they have to a certain extent throughout the series. But in game one, midway through the second period, Steven Stamkos, one of the all-time worst plays I've ever seen a player make of that caliber in the postseason. Um, and Steven Stamkos, he knows better. He's the captain of the Tampa Bay Lightning He's been there a long time. I believe he came in in 2008. He had a little bit of trouble when he first started in the NHL. Uh, Barry Melrose, who's now a, uh, he's been a long time. He's now an analyst on ESPN. Uh, he coached for the Kings with Gretzky whenever they lost to Montreal in the Stanley Cup final in 1993. He's been around the hockey world. He's well-respected. He's got a great head of lettuce. And um, he's famously quoted as saying, Steven Stamkos can't play in the NHL. And like two years later, he had 65 goals or 60 goals, whatever it was. <laughs> So uh, pretty crazy, but Steven Stamkos, I mean, like I said, he knows better. He knows better than this, and 
what he did, so I guess if you're not aware, in the second period of NHL games, the ice flips. So your bench is on the offensive blue line, basically, on the offensive side of the puck. So your defensemen have to go across the red line to change. It makes it a little bit more difficult. You want to get the puck in deep so you can get your defensemen to change and not give up odd man rushes the other way. So it's the second period, about midway through, maybe 12 minutes to go. Steven Stamkos gains the offensive blue line. And what you're supposed to do in that situation, because they were trying to make a line change, a full-scale change. They want to change all three forwards and the two defensemen on the fly. He should chip the puck in deep. Get it 200 feet away from your net. Allow your team to make a change and live to fight another day. But Steven Stamkos doesn't do that. He pulls up. Just a ridiculous play. He pulls up at the uh, right, right over the blue line outside of his own bench. And instead, instead of chipping it in deep, he throws an absolute grease-filled pepperoni pizza across the ice right on the stick of Je- Josh Bailey. And Josh Bailey's an unbelievable player. I mean, he's, he's having a hell of a playoff. Um, and the puck just seems to find him, and it found him in this situation. But the worst part about it was Steven Stamkos made that egregious turnover at his own blue line, which is bad enough, but his defensemen were changing. But he turned around and changed too. So he jumps over the boards, and the person that replaces him, I'm not sure who it was, they jump on, and right when that happened, Josh Bailey um, sends Matt Barzell. He springs him in on a breakaway, a nice stretch pass up the ice, and Barzell goes down. Three seconds later, it's one nothing Islanders, and the guy that changed for Stamkos is just like, well, thanks, bud. Appreciate the minus. I mean, ridiculous. Just a horrible play, and good on John Cooper, the coach of the uh, Tampa Bay Lightning. He sat and benched Steven Stamkos the rest of that period, pretty much, sending a message. Um, and some people might scoff at that and say it's not a good idea in the playoffs to bench one of your best players, your captain, but I think the complete opposite. I mean, if he's going to make a bonehead play like that, and especially with the team that Tampa Bay has, um, they're loaded from top to bottom, so they could probably afford to have Steven Stamkos. I mean, hell, he's out of the lineup most of the time anyways. He's always banged up, unfortunately, for him, but I thought it was pretty awesome for um, you know John Cooper to do that and have the cojones to do it. And it definitely paid off because, and, and Steven Stamkos, he knows he made a bad play. I mean, he doesn't need to be benched, but it just sets the tone for the rest of the team that it doesn't matter what your you know status is on this team. If you're a first line center, you're a captain, or you're a fourth line jabroni, you're going to sit if you make a dumb play like that. Um, so good on John Cooper's swig of this bubbly for him. And that, uh, that goal, like I said, Barzell, he scored. And then Ryan Pollock, who's having a hell of a playoff. We'll talk about him here in a minute. And Tampa Bay just scored again. I believe Yanni Gore, 2-0 now. Uh, they're rolling. They're buzzing. Um, he scored to make it 2-0. And then uh, the Islanders got a late goal from Braden Point, who Braden Point's having an unbelievable playoff. I can't wait to get into his stat line here in a minute. But uh, they, they went on to win the game. The Islanders steal game one on the road at Amelie Arena down in Tampa Bay. And just an unbelievable game from the Islanders, and Tampa pretty much gave it away. They played well the whole game, but a bad play by Stamkos and a couple other bad plays to end up in the back of your net, and that's the way hockey goes. Um, game two, one of the most, uh, and I never understand how why this happens, but it happens far too often in the NHL. Braden Point skating into the uh, offensive zone. He chips the puck in. He's going right to the front of the net, maybe to cause some traffic or he's, you know, whatever the case is. He's trying to get to the front of the net, get to the scoring area. And Adam Pellick, who's having a hell of a playoff as well. I've been harping on him for the last, you know, couple episodes, how great he's been for the New York Islanders on the blue line. For some reason, he decides it's a good idea to shove Braden Point in the lower back, basically causing him to have no control over stopping or where he's going right into his own goaltender, Simeon Varlamov. It's like Simeon Varlamov goes, he gets run over and he basically like barrels back and hits the back of his head on the crossbar or the goalpost or whatever the case may be. And 
obviously it, a whole big brawl starts and the Islanders look at it and they act like Braden Point did it on purpose. And of course, you're going to come to the defense of your teammate. But it was really Adam Pellick. I mean, you're putting your goaltender in a lot of danger there for what? For nothing. And the best part about it was, and we could harp on the officiating in the NHL. It's, it's crazy because today I've been listening to uh, some other podcasts and some radio shows on Sirius and, and, and you know Sirius XM and NHL Network Radio and all that. And all these people were like, this is ridiculous. The officiating is so bad. And I'm like, it's been bad. It's never going to change. So just get used to it. It's unfortunate. It's a shitty part about the National Hockey League, but that's just the way it goes. Um, that's just the way the NHL wants it to be. It's a dinosaur league. You know, these old-time Canadians want it to be where mediocrity is the same as is treated the same and, and is equal to skill. Essentially, um, that's why you see a lot of the top players are out of the playoffs right now because these the high-end skill gets stifled because of the way the, these teams are allowed to play. They're allowed to interfere. They're allowed, they're allowed to be overly physical. Uh, they're allowed to break the rules essentially. Um, and it's it's just it's it's bad, but at any rate, Braden Point got a penalty on this play. Now, if you could go back and watch this, he was skating into the zone. He's got his back to Pellick. He's just going to the net. He's a National Hockey League player. He's going to stop. But Pellick decides, no, nope, I'm just going to shove him into our goalie and hope to get a power play out of it. And that's what they did. And it was ridiculous. Braden Point was irate. John Cooper was irate for the uh, Lightning on the bench. He was screaming at the officials, and it was one of the most egregious calls I've ever seen in my life. Just horrible. It should have. If you're going to call anything, you call Adam Pellick for a cross check or an interference or whatever, because the puck wasn't even in the viewpoint of Braden Point. I mean, it wasn't even close to him. So just an all-around dumb play by Adam Pellick, and really could have hurt his team. And uh, Simeon Varlamov did have to leave the game because of the concussion spot, or he had to go back and take a concussion test. And then he came back at the start of the second period. But on that ensuing power play, of course, wouldn't you know who won the pony? The New York Islanders score. Brock Nelson scores. So just unbelievable. Um, and then later in the game, luckily for Tampa, they came back. They, they end up winning the game 4-2. I believe on the game-winning goal, they had six guys on the ice for the game-winning goal. Which, again, goes back to the officials and the linesmen. And it's crazy because like even the, uh, I guess at the time of the goal, it was kind of like in a line change. So they give you a little bit of leeway. You know, they'll let the guy jump into play if someone on the back, you know, behind the play is going to make a change. But they usually don't let you do it when the guy's completely on the other side of the ice. I mean, it was blatant. Too many men on the ice uh, benefited Tampa Bay there for that. And um, it reminded me a lot of in 2009. I don't know if you remember this or maybe people that are listening weren't watching hockey or weren't paying attention or whatever the case may be. But the Penguins actually, I believe, in the Stanley Cup final. I know it was in the Stanley Cup final, but I can't remember what game it was. It might have been game four at home. They actually played, I believe it was for like 90 seconds in the offensive zone. They had six guys on the ice. It was, I mean, and nobody noticed it. Like the officials didn't notice it. Usually somebody on the opposing team bench, whether it's a trainer, a backup goaltender, a player sitting there, a coach, an equipment person, somebody notices because it's like, holy shit, how are they like hemming us in our zone this whole time? Well, they have six guys on the ice. The officials never noticed. It never got called. It didn't actually get brought up until later on the broadcast when Eddie Olchek, if I remember correctly, uh, good old Edzo. Uh, just just crazy that stuff can happen. And the officials have just been so bad. They get no benefit of the doubt here. And um, it, it, it's all around bad, all around bad. But like I said, the Lightning, even the series in Game 2, they won it 4-2. And they went back to Nassau Coliseum for Game 3. And where uh, Nassau Coliseum brought out all the stops. I mean, they brought out Jimmy Fallon. He was in there wearing a New York Islanders jersey a year ago. He was wearing a Rangers jersey, so I'm not sure how to feel about that, but I'm not a New Yorker. Um, 
I, and he was with Ralph Macchio. Ralph Macchio, the Karate Kid. The last time I saw him, him and Johnny Drama were arguing at the Playboy Mansion in Entourage to determine, you know, who was the one that uh, set the chimpanzees free out of the chimp cage back in the '80s or whatever, and got the lifetime ban for drama from the um, Playboy Mansion in the episode of Entourage. And uh, I think it ended up being Pauly Shore in the show. So just a classic moment in Entourage history. But that's the last time I've seen Ralph Macchio. I haven't been checking for his work. I have no idea what pilots he's doing or whatever, so sue me if he's some big-time guy that's in some awesome show you guys love. You know me. I don't really watch TV. I don't really watch movies, so that's not surprising that I don't know what Ralph Macchio is up to, but it was just surprising to see those two guys together. And I just got to ask the listeners out there. I'll be interested on the feedback on this. Is Jimmy Fallon funny? Like, do you guys find Jimmy Fallon funny? I think he used to be hilarious. He does one of the best Adam Sandler impersonations I've ever seen in my life. Um, like when he he was on, I think it was a DVD I used to have. It was like the best of Jimmy Fallon on SNL. They used to have it on on demand or whatever. Me and my boy JTL used to watch it all the time because it was just so funny. Uh, oh man, it was great. But like ever since he went to the Tonight Show, I think it started out okay. But I think all those shows are just kind of trash in my opinion. I mean, they're just boring and. I don't know how anybody watches those shows, to be honest with you, especially nowadays with all the different streaming services and the different content that's out there. It just doesn't seem like it'd be something that would be fun to watch. And maybe that's why I don't like it. Uh, but I'll be interested to see what people think, you know, if Jimmy Fallon's funny or not. You know, some of his movies are great. Again, me and my buddy JTL, we used to always watch uh, Taxi with him and Jimmy Fallon and Queen Latifah, one of the funniest movies of all time. And it's probably not a movie that a lot of people know about. I don't even know if it went to theaters. It probably went straight to DVD release. But uh, it's just an absolute gong show for for that movie. It's funny. If you haven't seen it, definitely check it out. You can probably find it in like the dollar bin at, uh, well, they don't have like FYE in those dumb stores anymore, but the dollar bin at Walmart or Target is probably in there somewhere. Um, but I just wanted to ask that because that was kind of like my, you know, my thought whenever I saw him. And that game was pretty much, it was kind of boring. Uh, Tampa Bay won two to one. Um, nothing really to write home about or really to discuss there other than Jimmy Fallon being in the stands. So um, I got to get a swig of this bubbly water. And then in game four, the New York Islanders got out to a 3-0 lead. Um, they played pretty well up until the last part of the third period, and the Tampa Bay Lightning started to battle back. And the biggest play of the game was Ryan Pollock. Um a game-saving save, an unbelievable save. The puck kind of squirted out. There's probably maybe like four or five seconds left in the game. It's 3-2 Islanders. They're trying to preserve a win. If they give up a goal there and it could go to overtime, they lose. They're down 3-1 in the series, and you can flip them over. They're all done on that side. But they were able to hold on, and the puck kind of came around the boards, and Kucherov made a hell of a one-touch play out to the middle of the ice. It went to Ryan McDonough, the veteran. Uh, he was, I believe he was a captain in New York for the Rangers for a long time, but he's been in um, Tampa for a couple years now, just a hell of a defenseman. And he got the puck, and Simeon Varlamov came out to kind of stop, uh, cut off his angle. I'm not sure what defenseman it was. I believe it was probably Adam Pellick. He slid on the ice, and McDonough, the heads-up play, he, uh, instead of shooting it right into the shin pads of Pellick, who's laying down, he stops on a dime, does a spin around, and tries to do a backhand shot. When he does, he kind of loses his edge, and he falls down. He's not able to get enough wood on it, and he shoots the puck. It never leaves the ice surface, but Ryan Pulak, it's going right in the net because Varlamov's out of the out of the crease. He kind of got fooled by the spin around. Pellick went flying whenever he uh, McDonough spun as well. And Ryan Pulak dives in front and just blocks the puck from crossing the goal line as time expires. An unbelievable all-time great play. And the one thing I saw about it, and maybe I'm a hater on this, but the New York Islanders 
uh, beat writers were saying that this was one of the best. Uh, it, it was the greatest sports moment in history. The only thing they they could think of that was a close second was the Derek Jeter flip, uh, where he caught the cutoff and he threw like a backhand flip to get somebody out in the playoffs. I'm not a baseball guy. I've always been told that's one of the most overrated plays um, in baseball history. But that's just me. And the person that told me that's my good buddy Troy, and he used to be a big Boston Red Sox fan back in the day. So that's probably where that came from. But I was just like, I mean, come on. Like, the best sports moment ever. I mean, it was a good sports moment. But, I mean, it was in the conference final. It's not in the Stanley Cup. I mean, Rob Scuderi in 2009, not to keep going back to the Penguins, but Rob Scuderi did a very similar thing. He, uh, Mark andre Fleury was down and out of the cage. He uh, got fooled on a move, and a great move. I don't know who it was. I want to say it was probably like Tom, uh, Tomas Holmstrom or Johan Franzen or something was trying to jam it in. And Rob Scuderi, and oh man, Tampa Bay, 3 nothing. Jesus. They are rolling. It's still the first period, too. And they're buzzing. 13, 13 shots to 5. Holy shit. Um, but Rob Scuderi's like down in the crease, and he stopped the goal from going in. He made a nice kick save. Uh, made a heads-up play not to put his hand on the puck because that would be a penalty shot if you put your hand on the puck in the crease. And it was so funny because the story afterwards, he was talking to the media about it, and he's like one of the most humble, quiet guys there is. And he was basically saying, like, you know, I, I played a big role. You know, I, it was a good play, but I'm just a piece of this team. But instead of saying I am just a piece of the team, he said I'm the piece of the team. So for like the next couple of years while well, he played in Pittsburgh and then he left, he went to LA and then he came back to Pittsburgh a couple of years later, but everybody in Pittsburgh still calls him the piece. And there goes Simeon Varlamov. He's pulled Ilya Sorokin in the game. Four and a half minutes to go in the first period, three nothing Tampa Bay. Oh boy. Oh boy. Um, but that's just what I thought of whenever the guy said that, like it's never happened before. I'm like, I mean, this has happened plenty of times in sports, especially in hockey. And I just named, you know, one off the top of my head, just being a Penguins fan. And I'm sure there's been a bunch of other plays like that, not to take anything away from Ryan Pollock, a hell of a play, but I mean, come on, it's not like it's the greatest sports moment of all time. And the Islanders fans are getting a little bit ahead of themselves here. The Islanders writers, I should say, um, I wanted to point out in this series, now I mentioned it's 3 nothing in Game 5 here, so we'll break down Game 5 on the next podcast. Uh, but Braden Point, this guy is unbelievable. Taken 79th overall in the 2014 draft. One of the best players in the, in the National Hockey League. He's got 12 goals in his last 15 playoff games, uh, or 12 goals in 15 playoff games this year, I should say. 17 goals in his last 20 games. He's got a goal in seven straight games. He scored in every uh, game this series, obviously, as I just mentioned. He's been dominant on a line with Andre Palat and Nikita Kucherov, who Kucherov hasn't scored a goal in his last eight games against the Islanders, but I believe he's got six assists coming into this game and coming into game five in the series. But the best part about Braden Point is he makes $6.75 million a year. An absolute steal for that production. I mean, this guy in a normal year, he can get you 40-plus goals, 90-plus points, no question. He's done it a couple years ago. And a lot of general managers around the league have to be looking at that and wondering how the hell Tampa Bay got him at that salary when they're paying guys like McDavid 12 and a half sheets a year, Matthews 11.34 million, Marner 10.7 million. I mean, you even look at Jack Eichel. Jack Eichel hasn't sniffed a playoff game and he's making $10 million a year. Um, so it's pretty crazy. And I know Tampa Bay, it's a great place to live. It's beautiful down there. The weather's great. They've got no state tax. I think a couple years ago when Steven Stamkos was a free agent and he was potentially going to go to Toronto. He, um, they, they basically offered him, I think he signed in Tampa for eight and a half million, but based on the, uh, tax implications and all that, it would be the same as him having a salary cap hit of like 11.25 or something like that at the time in Toronto. So 
just an unbelievable uh, you know position to be in if you're Tampa Bay and you're Julianne Brisebois, the general manager down there. I mean, he's got it made. They've got a great team. They got players that want to stay there and play because they're going to be contenders for the next decade. And I mean, they're just getting guys to come play there on the cheap. It's pretty crazy. And um, the Islanders fans will probably laugh and be like, haha, well, they're eighteen and a half million dollars over the salary cap and blah 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 and all that bullshit. But at the end of the day, I mean, it's a destination team. There's not many of them in the NHL with a great market, great weather, no state tax, just a great place to live. I mean, a lot of guys probably spend their summers down in Florida and stuff like that. So, you know, it, it's it's hard not to uh, be a little bit jealous of the Tampa Bay Lightning and what they've got going on down there. But I wanted to shout out Braden Point. He's been unbelievable. So swig of this bubbly water for him. And yeah, man, that... The Islanders are on their heels so bad in this first period. It's unbelievable. What a what a performance from Tampa Bay. Um, they're looking to get a stranglehold on this series, go up 3-2 with two chances to close it out and go on to face the winner of the uh, Vegas Golden Knights and the Montreal Canadiens. And that series has been pretty crazy, as I mentioned in the intro. I mean, everybody thought Vegas was going to win. I think last week when I talked to Ray, I was thinking the same thing. And I was maybe wishful thinking, hoping that I would be able to see Tampa and Vegas go at it, just two offensive juggernaut teams and two stacked teams. It would be fun to watch and great for hockey. But the more I think about it, the more I think Montreal can do it. I mean, game one, Montreal came out, they were firing, they were buzzing, they were just cooking on all cylinders. And Vegas was on their heels for a large part in the first period. They got a fortunate goal and a great shot from Shea Theodore from the blue line that Carey Price was screened for. He really couldn't see the puck and went right over his shoulder and under the bar. Great shot. But in the second period, they came out and Montreal just took penalty after penalty after penalty after penalty. And it was just really um, you know, hard to get back in a rhythm. I mean, their chemistry is gone. Their best players are sitting on the bench because they don't kill penalties. And, you know, I thought Carey Price actually played a pretty solid game. Um, looking at the score, they lost four to one, but I mean, a lot of those goals, like I said, they couldn't get in a rhythm and they were all over the place. They were losing their man and defensive zone coverage. I mean, I think two of the four goals they scored were basically empty net goals because Carey Price was just like left out the dry and he has to go, you know, left to right or right to left or whatever. And they're just putting him in empty nets because there's not any defensive zone coverage and Montreal was just all over the place. Um, and they were missing Jeff Petrie. I talked about it last week with Ray. He got his finger caught in the uh, camera hole in the previous series and broke his finger. And, you know, he was the big story of game two. He returned for game two and his eyes were as red as the Montreal shoulders on their jerseys. I mean, I don't know what the hell. Like, it was pretty crazy. I was talking to my buddy Ray. I'm like texting him. I'm like, holy shit, man. Did you see his eyes? And like, and then it's all over Twitter. His eyes were as bloodshot as I've ever seen him on any human being ever. Um, that, let alone a player that's playing in the National Hockey League. It looked like it definitely was hurting for sure. But um, his wife took to Instagram and she was not very happy with people that were chirping him. She said, quote, no, it's not allergies. No, it's not after a couple nights in Vegas. No, it's not bloodshot because he's tired. No, they don't hurt or bother him. It's all related to his upper body injury. But let me tell you, he looks a lot better than he did a couple weeks ago. So, I mean, holy shit, I don't know what's going on there. And I tried looking it up a little bit, but I'm not a doctor. I didn't get down that rabbit hole and the WebMD and all that shit. But it was just uh, pretty badass, honestly. And and he played great. I thought he had like those colored contacts in and stuff that he was wearing and tried to intimidate the other team. But, <laughs> but uh, no, he just looked pretty badass. And he was all over the ice. He was playing really well. Um, one guy that really stands out for Montreal and has stand, uh, stood out all playoffs is Yoel Armia. 
eight points in 14 games. He's playing bottom six role, but he's really producing really, really well. Um, I think he's a free agent this summer. I'm not sure if he's unrestricted or uh, restricted, um, but he's going to get a big payday wherever he goes. If he stays in Montreal, it probably makes sense for them to keep him if they can within the salary cap, but he might be able to go elsewhere and get money and get a payday before the end of his career, but he's having a hell of a time and picking a hell of a time to do well in the playoffs because he's in a, um, you know, in a contract year and, it's going to be pretty interesting to see what uh, you know what happens with him, and I'm sure his agents just chomping at the bit to get to the summer, especially if they go on and win the Stanley Cup. That'll only increase his value because he'll keep playing well, and I think he's probably been the best player for Montreal, maybe outside of Carey Price and Cole Caulfield, the American stud. Um, in game two, like I mentioned, Jeff Petrie was back, but also for Vegas, Mark Andre Fleury he did not play well. Um, he seemed to struggle tracking the puck. He was fighting it a little bit. He's been great all season. Uh, great in the first couple rounds of the playoffs. He's played very well. He's held down the fort when Robin Leonard was out. If you remember, Robin Leonard's the starter. Um, as, as crazy as that is, because Marc-Andre Fleury's a Vezina finalist. He might win the Vezina trophy for best goaltender in the NHL, but he's not the starter there. And uh, he didn't play well in game two. He gave up three goals on 23 shots for 0.869 save percentage, which is just brutal if you're an NHL goaltender, especially one of Fleury's caliber and one up for the Vezina trophy. Um, just not great, not great at all, Bob. And, and, uh, then on top of that game three happened, the Vegas golden Knights, they controlled the play of the entire game in game three. They had time on attack out the ass. They were in the Montreal offensive zone the whole time. Carey Price was standing on his head for the most part. Vegas got a fortunate goal, um, in the first period off a horrible turnover by Eric Stahl, where if you don't follow hockey too much, I'll try to explain it in simple terms, but basically you're taught when you're a kid and really at every level, you never want to exit your zone up through the middle of your, like go through the middle of the ice. It's very dangerous to try to move the puck through the middle of the ice. So a lot of teams used to chip it up off the boards. They use the, uh, the boards to rim it around to a winger who will be then filled by a centerman and he can kind of chip it to him and they try to exit the zone that way. It's a little bit easier to see visually, but I'll try to describe it. But teams and coaches and that the way that things evolved in the NHL, with the film study and the coaches getting smarter and all this stuff, they started to cut off the boards. So basically now teams like I, it was really made famous in the early part of the 2000s decade by the Detroit Red Wings, where they started moving the puck up the middle of the ice. And I'm sure I'm a young guy. So I'm sure there's probably teams that did it before that, that I'll have these old timers yelling at me because I'm saying it started in the early 2000s. I'm not saying it started then. I'm just saying it was made famous by a team that was, as efficient as possible, the Detroit Red Wings in like the 2006, 2007, all the way up through the early part of the uh, 2010s there. I'm just giving them credit and giving Mike Babcock credit. And they started moving the puck uh, through the middle of the ice to exit the zone. And that's what a lot of teams do now. And that's what Eric Stahl was trying to do here. He just thought Corey Perry might be a little bit closer to him. And he made a pass right on the stick of Nick Waugh for the Vegas Golden Knights right in front of Montreal's net. He buries it top bunk. And then it's just, you know, one nothing. It's a bad goal. Um, to give up, but not on Carey Price. And then shortly right after that, I think it was 39 seconds later, the stud American player Cole Caulfield having a hell of a playoff. He got a nice pass from uh, Nick Suzuki, sprung him in on the breakaway, and he went top cheese as well. So uh, bar down, beats Flurry. It's 1-1. And then later in the game, I mean, that's what Montreal does. Like, I got to point that out. Montreal, they just, they never go away. They always keep coming. They're always there. You can't ever put them away. They're very difficult to put away. And um, obviously on this night, Vegas wasn't able to do so. They did grab a 2-1 lead in the third period, and they outshot Montreal 45-27. to So that kind of goes back because they ended up losing this game. 
that kind of goes back to Marc-Andre Fleury. I mean, they're almost doubling them in shots, and they're losing games. you got to get some saves from your goaltender. I know that some of them are breakaways, some of them are two-on-ones, but you're allowed to make a save. That's just you know the way it is. Um, but it's 2-1, like I mentioned, and there's about two minutes and five seconds left in the third period. And you see this a lot with um, announcers, especially in football, where the field goal kicker will be coming out to try to tie the game or you know send it to overtime or win it in overtime or whatever the case may be. And the announcer will say, this guy hasn't missed a field goal inside of 40 yards in his last 23 attempts. And then he shanks it off the left upright. And it, it always happens. It always seems to happen. There's an always an, there's always a jinx. Um, you know, you see it like they don't even mention it in baseball when the guy has a no hitter or a perfect game or something because you know that you're going to jinx it. And you don't really see that in hockey. But in this case, the announcer with about two minutes and five seconds left, he says, you know, Montreal, if they want a chance to tie this game and they want to, um, you know, get get this game even and get to overtime, they got to get the puck deep. They got to get a four check going, but they can't get it past Flurry. He's coming out. He's stopping the puck. He's helping his defenseman exit the zone. He's like a third defenseman back there, and he's playing the puck unbelievably well, and they got to do something to rim it around the glass and, and get it behind him and get a four check going. And right on cue, Montreal dumps the puck in. Marc-Andre Fleury goes back to stop it. He tries to make a pass, like a backhand pass to his left. He's facing the glass behind the net to his left. I believe over to, I believe, Alex Petrangelo. And it kind of clips off the left skate of Fleury's, and it goes between his own legs, between his own wickets, right out in front of the net, right to Josh Anderson, who tucks it in the empty net with just under two minutes to go and ties the game. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, because I've seen that. I'm a Penguins fan. I've seen Fleury do that. It's plagued him his entire career. Um, unfortunately, it's no knock on him, but even back in, you know, 2003 in the World Juniors, he had a, basically an own goal, which cost him the gold medal in overtime. Then in 2014, he did the exact same thing he did on the other night against um, Montreal in the Columbus series for the Penguins. A puck jumped over his stick late in the game. It went right out front. Brandon Dubinsky scored. And I looked at my wife whenever this happened the other night, and I said, Montreal is going to win this game. I thought it would be in the first five minutes of the period in overtime. Because Flurry, it's just it's a mental thing, man. It's it's very difficult to get over that. I'm sure going into the intermission was very tough for him, feeling like he let his teammates down and all that stuff. But it's unfortunate. You you wish you know it didn't happen, or you wish the goaltender would just stay in the net sometimes, especially late in the game, because that that stuff can happen, and it happens far too often. I mean, we saw Tristan Jari, you know, give up a game against the Islanders earlier in the in the first round. Um, so just. You know, it, it can happen. It can happen to the best of them. And that's exactly what I, I figured would happen if, if, if it did, you know, after it did, that they were going to lose the game. And they did. They lost the game on um, Vegas. I mean, they looked horrible in overtime. They were all out of sorts. And I'm sure it caught them off guard. They thought they were going to win the game. They just had to sit on the puck, basically, and not do anything stupid. And that's exactly what they did. They did something stupid. It cost them the game. Uh, they gave up a 2 on 0 in overtime, which ultimately led to the goal. Josh Anderson, a great play, batted it out of midair at the blue line, almost a high stick on the play, but he kept it below his shoulder, and it went to Paul Byron. Paul Byron made a nice fake shot, pass over to Josh Anderson, and he just snuck it right in the empty net, and Flurry just took off. I mean, you could tell that the Vegas Golden Knights, they didn't have it in overtime, and they really couldn't recover. Um, so it was a bad look, and just a bad play all around for Marc-Andre Flurry, and you got to feel for the guy because Game 4, uh, Pete DeBoer, who I think is looking for any excuse to start Robin Leonard. I mean, Robin Leonard is the starter. They gave him a contract extension a year or so ago. Um, they named him the number one guy. He was banged up this year. And Marc-Andre Fleury, to his credit, he took the reins and he played well. Again, he's a Vezina Trophy candidate. And this might be the third time he's going to get 
be a backup goaltender going to the Stanley Cup final. Potentially, if Vegas can can hold on here, because in Game Four, Vegas went into the Bell Center in Montreal. They played great, and Robin Leonard played great. He gave up one goal. Um, they ended up winning the game, and the series is tied two two, and it was a great game. And Vegas, they're rolling. They're going back to T-Mobile Arena for Game Five, I believe, on Tuesday night. And I would expect Robin Leonard to start as well. So. You never know. Will Mark Andre Fleury get the cage again? We saw this in 2017 with the Penguins when Matt Murray went in, you know, in a very similar situation. They got blown out. Um, I believe it was five nothing in Game Three against Ottawa to make it a two-one series lead for the Ottawa Senators, and the Penguins switched over to Matt Murray and never looked back. Went on to win the Stanley Cup for the second year in a row. So you kind of feel for Fleury. You wonder what's going to happen with him this offseason, especially everything that happened with him last year whenever he got replaced by um, Robin Leonard in the playoffs, and then. Uh, his agent put out that picture of the Vegas Golden Knights and Pete DeBoer stabbing Flurry in the back after a great season. So it'll be interesting to see how it plays out, but uh, it's definitely made some made for some good theater. Um, like I said, Game Five is Tuesday night, so uh, swig of this bubbly water for Montreal and Vegas for putting on a hell of a series. A couple of stats I wanted to point out for the two teams in this series, um, you know, not strictly related to this series, but for the two teams involved. Montreal, they've been shorthanded 40 times in the playoffs. They've only allowed three power play goals, and they've scored four shorthanded goals. So they've got more shorthanded goals scored than they've allowed power play goals. That's a recipe for success, if you ask me. And on the flip side for Vegas, in the last 30 years, no team has won a Stanley Cup with a power play percentage below 11%. Vegas is at 10.5. There's also never been a team to finish last in the power play percentage in the playoffs and win the Stanley Cup. Vegas is dead last. And Riley Smith, one of their best players. I mean, that that power play, they've got Alex Petrangelo, Shea Theodore, Mark Stone, William Carlson, Riley Smith, Alex Tuck. I mean, they've got great players and great goal scorers and good finishers. And Riley Smith said it after the last game, you know, after game three, I should say. He said, you know, this power play is costing us the series right now. And it definitely is. I mean, they can't click on the power play. And when they're getting chances, they're not scoring. And Montreal is getting shorthanded goals. You never want to give up a shorthanded goal. Very rarely in the NHL do you win a game if you give up a shorthanded goal, especially if you don't capitalize on the power play to negate that shorthanded goal. So it's going to be a long road for Vegas if they want to get uh, get things turned around here and win the Stanley Cup. They really got to get their special teams going. Um, but that's just pretty remarkable what Montreal has been able to do. And they're surprising a lot of people. They're surprising me. They're surprising the hockey world. I mean, I think a lot of people thought Vegas would roll right through this, as I mentioned with the odds. The odds makers thought it would be probably a quick series, four or five games. This one might go the distance. Uh, a couple notes from around the NHL. Speaking of Vegas, Gerard Gallant, he used to coach Vegas. He got canned when the team was in first place a couple years ago, unbelievably. He must just rub everybody the wrong way because they replaced him with Pete DeBoer, who's their coach now. But um, Gallant, like I said, they were in first place. They went to the Stanley Cup final in their first year. He was the coach then. Uh, he was in Florida before that. Florida was dog shit for a long time. Gerard Gallant comes along. Um, not saying he's the only reason. They got some good players down there, and they made some good acquisitions and good free agency signings and all that stuff. But he got them to the playoffs, and I believe that was 2015. I want to say it was when uh, John Tavares and the New York Islanders beat them, and it was like the Islanders' first playoff series win in 25 or 30 years, something like that. It was a huge moment at the Barclays Center. 
Um, back where the Islanders used to play, thank God they're playing in Nassau Coliseum now, and they're getting a, they're getting a new arena next year. I just saw today that all their uh, season tickets are already sold out. Twelve thousand season tickets sold out for next year, so that's going to be pretty cool to see how that arena looks. And um, it'd be nice to get up there to a game and watch the Penguins play up on Long Island. But I digress from that because Gerard Gallant, when he was in Florida, like I said, they got to the playoffs and then he got fired as well, just kind of out of nowhere. And like he must have really pissed somebody off there. Because they didn't even wait till he got back to um, Sunrise. They were on a road trip. They fired him on the tarmac. And they basically told him to get his own way home. And then the, the team went on their plane. And he's, he's stuck wherever the hell they were. I don't remember where they were. But but like this guy, I mean, he's a great coach, obviously. He gets results. But he must rub people the wrong way. So hopefully he changed his attitude or whatever the case is. Because it's going to be just... Um, you know, crazy to see how he does in New York. That market, that team's loaded. They've had a couple um, top picks in the last couple of years. They've got Artemi Panarin, good goaltending, and Igor Shesterkin. Um, they've got Adam Fox on the blue line. You know, it's just going to be pretty crazy to see. I think it's a great hire for the New York Rangers. Um, definitely scares me as a Penguins fan a little bit. Another great coach in the division. And he got a four-year contract at $3.5 million a year. So pretty manageable right there. Uh, I think he's going to have a lot of success. And Quinn, too, the old coach, I think he'll uh, find find work somewhere soon, too. He, he was a great coach um, at the collegiate level, and I think he just got a team that was a little bit too young and banged up this year and kind of in a transition phase, watching Henrik Lundqvist move on um, and some young guys come in. So I think Gerard Gallant's really going to benefit from some of the work that uh, David Quinn put in. Um, Jack Eichel. I've talked about Jack Eichel a lot on the podcast and not much recently because we're in the playoffs in Buffalo. They don't even know what the playoffs is. They can't spell playoffs in Buffalo if you're a hockey fan. But it looks like he's going to be traded very soon. Him and Sam Reinhardt. It's been reported that uh, basically there's a trade in place and he's going to be dealt pending a physical. I know he's got that injury that he's trying to deal with, whether it's going to be uh, surgery or rehab that he has a little bit of a disagreement with the Buffalo Sabres organization. Um, so we'll see where that goes. But the rumored teams are Chicago, the Los Angeles Kings, and the Anaheim Ducks. And you're going to have to give up a big package, a lot of draft picks, I think, if you're going to get Jack Eichel. But I think it's a good move, no matter where he goes. I bet every team calls. Not every team has the assets. Like a team like Pittsburgh or Washington or Boston, they don't have the assets to acquire an Eichel, I don't think. But it's not every day a 24-year-old you know, superstar, generational talent on the market and I believe there's going to be a lot of suitors, and Buffalo should get a lot of, uh, you know, they should get a haul for um, Jack Eichel. So hopefully, if you're a Buffalo Sabres fan, it sucks losing your captain and your best player and the best player your team's seen in the last decade, but it might be uh, for the better in the future. So swig of beer for Jack Eichel. Looks like he's finally going to get what he wants, and we'll see if where he ends up going. Hopefully, he doesn't go to Columbus, and Columbus would be stupid to. I saw they were rumored a little bit to be talking to Jack Eichel. Um, or at least talking about Jack Eichel. I don't think you can talk to him directly based on the rules of the league since he's under contract with Buffalo. But he's not going to resign there, even though he has a massive deal, and he'll probably just shoot it down and be have the boo-boo face and all that stuff. So it's going to be uh, pretty interesting to see where he goes. Um, my guess is the Los Angeles Kings, and I think that'll be a great spot for Eichel. So swig of beer for Jack, or swig of bubbly water, I should say, <laughs> for Jack. I want to pivot over to the Minnesota Wild a little bit and talk about Kirill Kaprizov, um, the young stud player, left winger. Uh, he was a rookie this year. He's probably going to win the Calder Trophy. He's a finalist for Rookie of the Year if they haven't announced it already. 
he's unsigned. I believe he's a restricted free agent. And you always wonder with these Russian guys, because it's been reported now that he's actually in Moscow and his team, CSKA, I think is how you say it, CSKA, they're the team in the KHL that none of the rules apply to. They don't have to abide by the uh, salary cap. The referees call all kinds of extra penalties for them, and they always win, and blah, 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 blah. All the best players in Russia play for them. It's pretty much a gong show, but they have the rights to Karol Kaprizov, and it's being rumored that they're going to offer him big money. And over there, those high-end Russian players, they make millions of dollars tax-free. So it's definitely attractive to go over there and play, but you got to wonder, does Kaprizov, who's played a couple years in the KHL, he's won some KHL titles, does he want to stay in the uh, NHL and try to win the Stanley Cup with the Minnesota Wild? And you got to feel for Minnesota Wild fans. I mean, it would absolutely suck if he goes back to Russia. But I think they're going to be dealing with this through Kaprizov's whole career because, like I said, you never know if the Russians are going to want to go home. They're going to want to get back you know, where their friends are, their family is, everything they know, everything they're comfortable with. Um, so it should be interesting to see how it plays out selfishly for me and like as a, as a hockey fan and an NHL fan and I'm sure the NHL is hoping that he stays because he's electric and he's brought something to Minnesota that they haven't had for a very long time it's a great market up there uh sold out all the time they sell out for high school games there for the high school state championship it's just an unbelievable place to see a hockey game and I just hope that uh, Kaprizov signs back there and they continue to build on you know what they can because they just got Ray Shero the old general manager for the Pittsburgh Penguins he played a vital role in some of their success um in the early part of Sidney Crosby's career and he just went over there to join uh, ex-penguin Billy Guerin in the front office there. I believe Shero is going to be an advisor or a um, president of hockey ops and I think J- uh, Billy Guerin's the general manager. So they're building a good team over there and we'll see what happens um, with Kaprizov. So hopefully he'll stick around. Um, I wanted to talk too about Rod Brendamore. Just a quick note on him. He is the uh, Jack Adams trophy winner for coach of the year. He's the guy I mentioned a couple weeks ago that wanted to uh, remain unsigned and not sign a contract extension until the organization took care of his staff, the equipment staff, his um, his assistants, his trainers, all that stuff, everybody that works behind the scenes. And that's exactly what happened. They all got deals. Um, and Rod Brendamore did, you know, true to his word, he signed a three-year deal. I think he took a little bit of a pay cut. I didn't see the amount, but he didn't really care about the money. They got a good team down there, a good thing going. He lives in Raleigh. Um, so it should be interesting to see, you know, where that goes from here. And you got to give a big swig of bubbly for, uh, Rod Brendamore for taking care of the guys that you know help make the the team go and help it make everything go smoothly behind the scenes and those guys are underappreciated for sure so awesome uh, move by Rod Brendamore what a great guy I couldn't think of a better coach to play for in the National Hockey League and I'm sure most coaches and players around the league would say the same thing so swig a bubbly for that I wanted to pivot over and talk about ESPN a little bit with regard to the National Hockey League and their coverage of it and what they think of the NHL. Um, I was watching a UFC fight a couple weeks ago. I guess it was two weeks ago now or two weekends ago with my buddy Zach. Shout to Zach. And I didn't even know who the hell was fighting. I don't watch UFC, but we were just hanging out outside, crushing a couple cold ones and having a good time. And we decided to order the fight. And so it's on ESPN+. Plus. So they're showing it before and they're showing all the celebrities, you know, all the celebrities, they go to these UFC fights or they go to boxing matches. And now that uh, COVID restrictions are loosening everywhere and people can go to these um, events, it's pretty cool to see. But they're showing all the celebrities that are walking in and they show Justin Bieber. Now, Justin Bieber, I love Justin Bieber because he's like, he's making it cool to do what I've been doing for the last decade. Now, I'm not saying I'm Justin Bieber, obviously, but I'm just talking about like, 
when he goes out in public, he looks like he's just lounging around at his house with what he's wearing. He's got an oversized sweatshirt. He's got like dirty shoes and he's just, you know, he, he's got his own thing. He don't give a shit. He's worth more money than anybody in that building, I'm sure. So they're like, the Beebs is in the house. The Beebs is in the house. And they like zoom in on him. But right next to him is Austin Matthews, his good buddy. You know, the stud forward uh, center, the Rocket Richard winner this year for the Toronto Maple Leafs, one of the best young players in the National Hockey League. They zoom right past him and just zoom in on Justin Bieber. And right behind both of those guys is Frederick Anderson, the goaltender for the uh, Toronto Maple Leafs, because Justin Bieber's from Toronto. He's a huge Maple Leafs fan. It's just unbelievable. Like you would think they just, and I know that ESPN just bought the rights for the NHL because they need programming and they don't need to have like all these stupid debate shows on all the time and show reruns and show, you know, the other day they had like bowling on, which bowling is electric to watch, but they have like cornhole championships, uh, mini golf championships, all this shit nobody watches, but they want to have programming. So they went and got the NHL rights and they want to be a monopoly. They don't want anybody else to do well. If they could go out and get all the NBA rights, all the NHL rights, all the major league baseball rights, all the NFL rights, they probably would. Um, and it'd still be, you know, cutting salaries from the behind the scenes people so they could pay for that. And they could pay for guys like Stephen A. Smith and Max Kellerman to be on TV, just spouting BS all day for seven or $8 million a year. But I digress from that. But I was just like, why in the hell would they not show Austin Matthews? I mean, they could try to plug it a little bit. He's with Justin Bieber, which makes Austin Matthews cool, I guess, in the eyes of a casual fan. And Matthews is the man. He's awesome. He's big in fashion and all that. So he fits in with that crowd. Um, one of the best players in the NHL, obviously. So I just thought it was you know, ridiculous that ESPN just completely glossed over one of the best players in the NHL. And that's just kind of a sign of what's gonna what's to come from ESPN. I think they're going to be the redheaded stepchild of ESPN. They're never going to get coverage. The highlights will just be like, they'll pick it up here with two minutes to go and it's like 5-4 and they don't show any of the goals. They just show the end. Um, and they'll go right back to what LeBron had for dinner. So it's just like, it's it's unreal. And speaking of fighting, I just wanted to mention two things. Uh, rough and Rowdy. If you don't know what Rough and Rowdy is, it's the Barstool Sports like boxing thing they do where they like have amateurs come fight each other. It's usually like two people from, you know, West Virginia or something that have a real beef with each other in high school and they sign up and they it's on pay-per-view and then they'll have some Barstool guys fight each other um, or whatever the case is. And sometimes there's big fights at it. Um, most notably, I think, uh, the $20 chef, Sean Latham, he's a stand-up comedian. He used to work for Pat McAfee. Then he worked for Barstool for a little bit. Um, he fought like a stand-up comic from Pittsburgh that they really hated each other. And that was like one of the bigger, uh, bouts in rough and rowdy history. And admittedly, I haven't watched too many of them. Um, I just don't want to pay money to watch, you know, two guys I've never seen before, you know, just have like a, a fight that you would see the same quality of fight outside of your high school back in the day. Um, you know, so that's kind of how I feel about, uh, feel about rough and rowdy, but it sounds like Matthew Barnaby is one of the best fighters in NHL history and just a all around rat scumbag player, uh, from back in the nineties and two thousands, he played in Pittsburgh. Um, he's hilarious too. He's got a podcast. Uh, he's on the radio up in Canada a lot. He's a good guy. Uh, he called out Sean Avery. Sean Avery's the guy that told, um, you know, when he was in Dallas, he was talking about somebody in the league that was dating his ex-girlfriend and uh, she, he's like, how's my sloppy seconds taste and all this shit. So <laughs> like uh, he's, a, he's a character in and of his, himself. And, you know, it would be awesome to watch those two guys go at it. And Matthew Barnaby has been all over him on Twitter, sending videos, calling him out. So it'll be interesting to see if this happens. Um, I really hope it does. And I'll definitely pay to watch that. I think that will be pretty interesting and pretty funny uh, for those two guys to battle it out. Two huge personalities, um, two guys with big egos and two tough guys. 
So I'd love to see that happen. Um, and last boxing note, I'm not a boxing guy. If you're interested in any boxing, definitely check out my buddy Jordan's podcast, the two beers podcast. Um, it's really interesting. They got a lot of insight on boxing, but I was just watching TV with my wife the other day and at the bottom of the screen, it showed there was a boxing match. I don't, it might have already happened. I have no idea, but the guy's name was Morel Jr. That was his name. So he's now my favorite boxer. I have no idea where he's from. I have no idea what his record is. He might be horrible for all I know, but all I know is He's the man. He's my new favorite boxer. He's already a boss, in my opinion. You can't ask for a better name than that. So swig of bubbly water for Morel Jr., the best upcoming boxer in the world. Before I jump into any other stories or any other entertainment stories I want to talk about, um, Ilya Sorokin for the uh, New York Islanders, he's the goaltender that came in to replace Simeon Varlamov after he gave up three goals in the first period. He just took a slap shot up high in the neck, and he went down. Um, he doesn't look so well right now. He's He's staying in the game, it looks like, but... I'm going to keep my eye on that because if Simeon Varlamov has to come back in, you got to be worried if you're an Islanders fan um, because the two goaltenders potentially, you know, one shooken up and one shooken up for another reason that he got, he let up three goals in the first period. Um, so something to keep your eye on and Tampa Bay's on the power play right now, 14 and a half minutes to go in the second period. They're up three, nothing. Um, I mentioned in the intro, I met Doc Sampson, the AEW all elite wrestling uh, doctor. He worked for WWE for a while. Obviously, he saved Jerry the King Lawler's life. What a guy. Just a genuine guy. It was a great conversation. So um, I wanted to talk a little bit about pro wrestling. I actually watched um, a great documentary. If you haven't watched these Dark Side of the Ring documentaries on Vice TV, even if you don't like wrestling, I suggest checking them out because they're just great stories. They're like it's you know it's called the dark side of the ring and it's like all these different behind the scenes things and like guys that were accused of murder uh the first season i think it was like uh somebody got murdered in a show for nothing tampa now steven stamkos boy this is bad if you're an islanders fan power play goal but the first season they had a story where like um you know somebody got murdered in a locker room in a foreign country and you know it, Watch the one on Grizzly Smith. He's the dad of Jake the Snake Roberts, and he just had a, he led like a double life, and he was always around. Um, you know, I th I think he had something to do with his daughter's kidnapping, and it was just crazy. Like it's 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 one of those like crime stories that you would definitely enjoy um, if you're into that kind of thing, and it's definitely interesting. Obviously, it's not a great story because like you don't want to see that stuff happen, and some of the um, disgusting things that those wrestlers do and, and people do in general. Like if you like any kind of uh, crime shows, forensic files and all that, my sister and I always loved watching those, but it, it's kind of like that, but it has a wrestling twist to it. Um, but I watched a real sad one over the weekend. It was on China, the ninth wonder of the world, uh, the wrestler China. She was in Degeneration X. She worked for WWF back in the attitude era in the nineties. Um, and then ultimately had a falling out with the company because she was dating Triple H, uh, Paul Levesque, Hunter Hearst Helmsley, who then uh, left her for the boss's daughter, Vince McMahon's daughter, Stephanie McMahon. And China's career kind of took, took a downturn at that point. Um, and it's just a pretty remarkable story. It's incredibly sad, you know, kind of how she went down a path with demons and all kinds of things and substance abuse. And she was an um, adult film star. I mean, this, this woman was the biggest wrestler you know, biggest wrestling star on the planet. Um, I mean, she was just, she would wrestle men, which was never heard of um, at that point, probably never will be again, but she was the first WWF intercontinental champion, which at the time was an all men championship. Um, they never really had women wrestle for it to my knowledge. Um, and she was believable. She was a hell of an athlete, a great athlete, great on the microphone, just a great career and one of the best. And, um, the biggest takeaway I took from it, obviously, other than it being incredibly sad was, just how just 
petty the WWE is. I mean, they so uh, Triple H was on Stone Cold Steve Austin's podcast a couple years ago, and he said to Triple H straight up, "Hey, when's China gonna be in the Hall of Fame?" And Triple H, one of the dumbest answers I've ever heard. He basically came out and said, "You know." Does she deserve to be in the Hall of Fame for her wrestling background and her wrestling achievements? Of course she does, 100%. But he's like, I have 8-year-old and a 7-year-old kid or whatever the case is at the time. And they're going to Google China Hall of Fame and some of that stuff's going to come up. And I just can't have that. And like, we can't have that. We're a family show and all that. It's just like, do we really want to go down? And you could do this in every Hall of Fame, but especially in wrestling. I just talked about it with Dark Side of the Ring. Do you really want to go look at the moral backgrounds of all these wrestlers and some of the things they did in the past? I mean... Jimmy Superfly Snuka, I believe, is in the uh, WWE Hall of Fame, and I'm pretty sure he murdered somebody. I think he got away with it based on statute of limitations. But, I mean, he's <laughs> there's some sketchy people in that WWE Hall of Fame, and it just seems like they're nitpicky, and they're kind of singling China out because they don't want to admit it, but it definitely has to do with Triple H and Stephanie McMahon and their relationship. And um, it's unfortunate. It's really unfortunate. I know she got into the Hall of Fame because DX got into the Hall of Fame, so they included her there, but she deserves to be there yesterday um, as just an individual, in my opinion, and I think a lot of people's opinion. Um, so that was definitely something that was sad about that documentary. I would you know, just definitely check it out if you're interested in that kind of thing or you know, you want to watch those Dark Side of the Rings. They're getting a lot of publicity. Um, they're definitely a lot better than those a, uh, A&E documentaries that WWE is co-producing because it's a, it has a WWE spin on it and all the stories are kind of like fabricated a little bit because WWE wants to make themselves look good. Um, and that's just a fact. That's not me being patty towards them. That's just kind of how WWE has always been. Um, you know, for instance, I got to get my buddy JTL back on the podcast to ask him about this, but just a quick note, they're actually now banning people that get released from the company from signing their own name as an autograph. So like if you're um, and not that this would ever happen to this guy, but just off the top of my head, if you're Edge, the legendary wrestler, and you go to a fan fest and somebody hands you a picture that you know is Edge with a WWE title, they don't want you to sign Adam Copeland. They want you to sign Edge because that's who they you know they love. That's their favorite wrestler or whatever the case is. It's just crazy. It's so petty, Tom Petty, of the WWE to do that, and it's just not surprising at all. Um, so, you know, I. I I'm looking forward to a little bit of wrestling coming up. Like I said, I'm going to look into AEW a little bit more just because I talked to Doc Sampson and he pointed out a couple awesome things about it and things that I think will, will be interesting to know, just some behind the scenes things. And they're coming to Pittsburgh in a couple of weeks and hopefully I'll get a chance to go down to the show. Um, so it should be pretty fun to watch. And with WWE, it's rumored that The Rock's going to be making a return on TV. He's going to um, have a feud with Roman Reigns, who's his cousin in real life. Right now, I believe Roman Reigns is um, in a little bit of like a family rift with his two cousins, Jimmy and Jay Uso. They were on the same side, and now they're kind of split, and they're beefing with each other. I believe The Rock's probably going to come in. He'll be on TV a little bit. He might even wrestle a TV match, which is pretty crazy to me. The amount of money he makes that he would risk his body and injury for a free TV show and not a big pay-per-view payoff. But it sounds like he's going to come back, and uh, he'll have a program with Roman Reigns, which ultimately will lead to a blow-off match at WrestleMania next year in April where uh, I'm sure Rock will put Roman Reigns over and make him a big star. So it's just a it, it's it's bad for the WWE in a sense because they can't create new stars. They're bringing Brock Lesnar back. They're letting a lot of young talent go to bring Lesnar back, to bring Rock back, Rock back. I mean it, it's just it's the epitome of the WWE, but they 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 can't grow new stars. So I'm looking forward to seeing you know how the Rock looks. He hasn't wrestled in a couple of years. I think he tore his pectoral muscle or whatever last time he wrestled. 
He's a little bit older now. It's not easy to just get in ring shape. I mean, he's in some of the best shape of his life, obviously. He always is. But it's not easy to just get back in wrestling ring shape like those guys. Like Roman Reigns works 300 days a year um, normally. So it's going to be fun to watch. The Rock's the man. I always like watching the Rock matches. He's still, still to this day, him and Stone Cold Steve Austin get the biggest pop out of the crowd. And they haven't wrestled. Um, Austin hasn't wrestled since 2002. And The Rock's only wrestled a couple spot shows and spot dates here. Uh, here and there in the last you know decade, so so swig a bubbly for the Rock, and uh, we'll see how that match goes. Two last notes I want to point out on the podcast this week: uh, the Jabroni of the Century Award is going to go out to Sophia Franklin. If you don't know who Sophia Franklin is, she is the uh, ex-co-host of the Barstool Sports, or I guess now ex-Barstool Sports podcast, Call Her Daddy, which is kind of like a um, a sex podcast like a pop culture podcast. They talk about mental health and stuff like that. And it's more geared towards like the college age kids. Uh, definitely more geared towards women. I've tried to listen to it a couple times and I think Alex Cooper, you know, she's a beautiful girl, but she's completely annoying and just horribly obnoxious. And I can't, I can't listen to it, but she does Joe Rogan type numbers. I mean, she's one of the biggest podcasts in the world. And uh, if you don't know why Sophia Franklin's the jabroni of the century last year, she kind of, went behind Barstool's back and tried to, so did Alex Cooper, but Alex Cooper came out afterwards and basically sided back with Barstool when she realized what kind of deal she was going to get. But they tried to get away from Barstool and go get more money somewhere else because Sophia Franklin at the time was dating the head of P, uh, the head of HBO Sports, Peter Nelson. And you've probably seen this. I mean, this happened you know, maybe a year ago or eight, ten months ago. And make a long story short, uh, Barstool basically said, hey, if you guys honor the rest of your contract, eight more months, we don't care. You guys can leave after this. We'll give you the intellectual property. We'll give you 100% of the podcast, basically wiping their hands clean. An unbelievable deal because Barstool didn't have to do that. Barstool could say, hey, we're taking 50% of it. You guys can go wherever you want, but we own 50% of it because that's what the original deal was. But they decided, you know what? You honor the contract, then you guys can leave and go wherever you want. We don't care. And Sophia Franklin didn't want to do that. She ultimately pulled out. She got fired from the show. Alex Cooper came back. She fulfilled her obligation. Uh, she worked eight months, and now she just signed a three-year deal at Spotify worth $60 million guaranteed. <laughs> guaranteed. 60 sheets. One episode a week. I mean, Spotify is just throwing money around left and right. They're just trying to acquire as much talent as they possibly can. Um, and drive their listenership up and get money from ads and everything like that. So it's going to be, um, you know, you, you almost have to feel for Sophia Franklin, but she's such an idiot that she thought she was getting one over on, you know, Barstool and on everybody, and she was going to make out like a bandit. And now she looks like an idiot. All she had to do was just stick to her contract. Even after she went behind Barstool's back, their president, Dave Portnoy, said he was willing to let bygones be bygones. Just fulfill your obligations of the contract and you guys can go wherever you want. And they would have been able to go wherever they want, obviously. As you see now, the um, Alex Cooper, who's the just the solo host of the show now, you know, she just got $60 million from Spotify. Her life is set forever. And all Sophia Franklin had to do was just suck it up, tell her boyfriend to turn it sideways and stick it up his candy ass, and everything would have been done. But now she's the rambling bruise jabroni of the century so i'm hopeful that she hears this uh, i'm sure she's hearing a lot about it and she's probably not uh, not in a good spot right now but you just gotta laugh at that you gotta laugh at it i would say swig a bubbly for her but <laughs> i probably should pour some out uh just a brutal move just an absolute brutal move um and last thing this week 
I know I talked about it last week with Ray on the podcast that I was going to watch Dave. Um, season two, I guess the first two episodes came out of the show Dave. That's Little Dickie's show on FXX. It's also on Hulu. That's where I watch it. I didn't quite like the first two episodes, to be honest with you. I don't want to spoil anything. The first season was awesome. I'm sure this season will be great, too. It's gotten great reviews, I've seen. Um, but the first episode was kind of him in Korea doing K-pop, um, like the Korean music. And it was a lot of drama, not much you know, comedy and all that. And I understand it's not going to be funny the whole time, but it just kind of... It wasn't what I was looking for in the second episode. I kind of fell asleep halfway through, so I'll have to watch that one again. It's off to a disappointing start, if you ask me, but um, maybe I'll just have to watch the first and second episode over again, and you know we'll see what happens. But definitely check it out. It's it's worth watching, especially the first season, and maybe you'll think differently than I do on the second season. My wife and I didn't really care for the first two episodes, but we'll keep watching. Little Dickie's awesome. He's super talented, uh, so definitely check that out. And uh, on that note... I hope you guys have a hell of a week. Again, sorry the podcast is delayed. I appreciate you guys sticking with me. Um, Chug some waters and have a hell of a week. And remember, if I don't see you around here, I'll see you around here. a bit of a break from the norm just a little something to break the monotony of all that hardcore dance that has gotten to be a little bit out of control it's cool to dance but what about a groove that soothes and moves romance give me a soft subtle mix and if it ain't broke then don't try to fix it and think of the summers of the past adjust the bass and let the alpine blast pop in my cd and let me run around and put your car on cruise and lay back because it's summertime